Hey, everybody, this is Chris Melanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. This, of course, is Justin Timberlake with his 2006 number one hit, Sexy Back, featuring its producer and co-songwriter Tim Timbaland Mosley, dropping manic vocals after each verse. Timbaland calls out each part of the song in a wacky voice, including both the bridge and the chorus. Tim's shout-out of The Bridge is in the lineage of such R&B hits as James Brown's Get Up, I Feel Like Being a Sex Machine and Destiny's Child's Say My Name. As on James Brown's hit, on Sexy Back, Tim's Take Him to the Bridge is both a command and a rhythmic element all its own, which makes it a natural to lead off this episode of Hit Parade, The Bridge. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to expand on those episode topics, and enjoy some trivia. This month, I'm honored to have a scholar and man of many talents as my guest. Jason King is the chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. He is a Canadian-American scholar, journalist, author, musician, DJ, performer, producer, songwriter, radio, and video host. And he has written everywhere from Pitchfork and Slate to Vibe and Billboard. In his leadership capacity at the Clive Davis Institute, Jason has brought numerous guests to the Tisch School, from Pharrell Williams to Nile Rodgers, Q-Tip to Alicia Keys. And on the legal side, he has served as a music marketing and branding expert for such artists as Timbaland. Honestly, if I ran down all of his many credentials, we'd be here all day. Jason is seriously the ultimate music scholarship renaissance man. So why don't we just bring him in? Jason King, welcome to The Bridge. Thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. Totally like blushing if you could see me with, uh, you know, with that intro, but thank you. You've earned every bit of it. Speaking of your impressive role, uh, particularly at the Tisch School, I know that you've had considerable interactions with the subjects of my most recent Hit Parade episode, including with Pharrell and Tim. I want to ask what they're like, if uh, you don't mind sharing. Sure. Um, Timbaland, I don't know well. I've met him before, but I don't know him well. I worked as a marketing branding expert on uh, a legal case um, that went on for a couple of years, the Big Pimpin' case with him and Jay-Z. Oh, yeah. That was that was quite something. Can you summarize? Is that summarizable <laughs> for our audience? In a nutshell, um, they were both being sued uh, by the... Um, alleged creators of uh, a sample that runs throughout Big Pimpin'. That's a, a big uh, part of it. And uh, the creators are Egyptian, um, and they were being sued for that. And essentially, my role was to come in as a marketing and branding expert, which is to basically say, you know, beyond the sample, there's lots of other things that go into adding or creating value for a song than just a sample. Sure. Uh, jury members might not know that, right? They might just listen to it and say, oh yeah, the sample is everywhere, so it's worth 70% of the song or whatever it is. Um, so my job is to come in and say, you know, who is Timbaland? Who is Jay-Z? What does their, what kind of brands do they have? How do those brands, how can you, you know, value those brands and uh, what role do they play in the valuation of a song like Big Pimpin'? Well, and then that's an interesting segue to a guy like Pharrell, who, of course, has his own run-ins with uh, legalities and, uh, 
I don't even want to say sampling because his the most famous case about him was not actually a sampling case uh, in terms of the blurred lines case, which I do talk about in this episode. So, I mean, Pharrell, I have um, interacted with uh, much more. Uh, he was an artist in residence, or I brought him as an artist in residence to NYU um, for their 50th anniversary year for the Tisch School of the Arts where I work. And I uh, did a number of events with him, did an interview, kind of doing an overview of his career. And, you know, he's amazing. He's just as amazing as he appears. He's thoughtful. He's smart. He's, you know, highly present, very in the moment. He can be protective and private, especially of his family, his friends. Mm -hmm. But I would, the thing I would say about Pharrell is, you know, he's more tapped in than probably anyone else I know. And, you know, what does that mean, tapped in? I, I, I think he's so connected to vibration and to frequency. He kind of just feels his way through the world. And in this interview I did with him, he would liken himself to Mr. Magoo, the cartoon character, <laughs> who's kind of just stumbling <laughs> through things. And, you know, he's being super humble. And he's referring to things like, you know, the Daft Punk collaboration that he did where, you know, he was just basically coming in and doing some top line writing. And then they took the demos that he did and they released those as this as the songs and they became global hits like the legend of the phoenix huh. ends with beginnings and so he didn't intend for it necessarily so he kind of stumbled into it by accident um, but of course there's lots of intentionality there and you know he's somebody who's very strategic as well and so it's a mixture of those kinds of things but I just feel like he's so tapped in whether you know we're talking about Daft Punk or his work with Kendrick Lamar or Ariana Grande or SZA like he just seems to keep connecting to all of these vibrations of what's current and popular and hot and he's like an amazing tastemaker still with it when boy ain't got to keep me I am chill don't you when you see me I'll kick it with my new beach eyes he really is. And, you know, I was trying in my episode to talk about the elements of what some have called the, the Virginia Beach sound, the Tidewater tick rhythm. What do you hear in certainly Pharrell's work and maybe how the sound of, since you've talked about Timbaland sound, how Timbaland sound distinct, is distinguished from, say, the Neptune sound, that kind of thing? First of all, you know, the thing I'll say about, about their sound, sounds, I, I just don't think there's a monolithic sound, right? There's like total diversity to the sound. And, you know, Pharrell could move between like the clips doing grinding or like, you know, a Britney Spears track um, to like Fronten, which is more jazzy and kind of introspective. To something like Milkshake and then... You know, Timberland also, I mean, he's just, you know, he could do mirrors for Justin Timberlake and then he can do, you know, the rain for Missy Elliott. There's a huge amount of of, um, of diversity to the sound. Um, and, you know, I'll also say the thing about like what makes their sound unique has to do with the time and has to do with the um, the context, you know, when they emerged into the music marketplace. And so just thinking of, you know, some of the kind of like the disco funk of Mary J. Blige or Notorious B.I.G. or like Bad Boy and Trackmasters and like the hit Hitman mm. and um, TLC or Monica or Soul For Real. Like when you think about the, the pop and urban scene then. And then suddenly you have this Virginia Beach sound which is darker, weirder, more unconventional, computer and synth generated, mm -hmm. right? Like lots of this music is coming out of a computer, very sounding futuristic, um, avant-garde. 
electronic. Of course, all of this is happening at the advent of digital recording tools, Pro Tools, and so on. Right. And they're using samplers like the Insonic uh, ASR10, the MPC 3000, right? Like, it's, it's a very odd, whimsical, capricious, computer-generated music, largely computer-generated music. That doesn't sound like anything else. It sounds metallic and um, clanging and, uh, um, I don't know, like, just whimsical and sci-fi and unusual. And left mm -hmm. of center. Um, and so, you know, I think... That's how I would define that Virginia Beach sound of that that late nineteen late nineteen nineties sound that came right before Y two K. That was the major difference for me, and also just you know rhythmically, right? There were some things there that just it didn't sound like anything else that was on on the radio of its time. And I remember the first time I heard "Up Jumps the Boogie" by Timbaland and Magoo. I'm up on this track like Pam it's an amazing record but i have to say the first time i heard it i was like i don't like this because it was sound it seems so slow like the i mean it's like so slow i was like what's happening it lopes it kind of it lopes yeah. up and and kind of sneaks up it's on a great you. word like loping lurching it's like a lurching weird beat has a strange kind of character to it and a stumble to it and again it sounded like nothing else on the radio and i remember viscerally disliking right. it until i learned how to dance to it and then i was like oh now i love it right because it's like <laughs> it requires like different kind of movement it's like bounce movement you know um but that's the thing i would say is different about their music if you have to separate you know timbaland and the neptunes music or timbaland and pharrell's music i mean timbaland you know, he's a kind of improviser who like starts with, usually starts with like beatboxing to make his tracks or like drum programming. And his drum programming was just, I mean, jittery and fidgety and, you know, the incredible like double time percussion, but like halftime beats, those like snares. grooves are so deep and in the pocket so you listen to something like uh, one minute man right it just it like literally lurches mm. and moves it has like a physical character to it you could tell his drum programming from the neptunes early on um so i was listening like right. listening to Aaliyah's one in a million for instance Like, it's like quiet storm, but then the hi-hats are going at like double speed. It's like a dot matrix printer out of control or something. Like, it's super weird, right? <laughs> what a wonderful way to describe it. I love that. I, I mean, how do you describe these things, right? You have like, you have to go to weirdness and whimsy. Right. Um, Pharrell and Chad uh, of the Neptunes, you know, their chords were a little bit more studied. You know, they met in school. Um, so I think of something like mm -hmm. Fronten or Change Clothes for Jay-Z. There's a kind of jazziness. Change clothes you know, they, you can clearly hear that they're sitting down to think about, like, what chords would work here? Um, there's also a kind of nostalgia in some of the Neptune's music. When you think of something like Shake Your Ass by Mystical, um, it's like James Brown, right? Or It's a James Brown record, right, in all intents and purposes. Shake your ass, watch yourself. Shake your ass, watch yourself. 
or even like I just want to love you give it to me that's like Rick James or slave for you is Prince um, I don't hear those kind of nostalgic references as explicitly in Timbaland maybe he would do like the Knight Rider theme for Clock Strikes remix but then it's like it's futuristic I, I don't think he's doing it because he's you know hearkening back to the 80s like it's current that's a great point but then you know you'll also see like happy for Pharrell which again was not intended for him to, to be the lead singer on and to release but he ended up you know being on it and having one of the biggest hits of his career I feel like that's too up for Timbaland. Like, I can't see Timbaland being on that track or doing it, you know? Not not to say <laughs> right. anything against Happy or Pharrell. It's just to say, it just doesn't, that doesn't feel like Timbaland's world at all if there's a difference between the kind of work that they would produce into the, you know, out in the world. And you also mentioned Timbaland's drum sound, and the drum sound for the Neptunes is very distinct and often live. I mean, like, they will, they will play a trap kit um, live in the studio, and it's got a very dry, almost brittle sound, which I find yeah. fascinating. It's like the last unelectronic thing on the record. Everything else is synthesized, and yet these drums are like very present and in your face. That's a really good point. And you know, thinking of NERD too, right? The fact yep. that they had like a, there's a rock element to what they do. Timbaland has broached rock in some of his work, but never like full on in that way. So there's, there is a live element, I think, to the Neptunes and to some of Pharrell's stuff. That It's not that it's not present in Timbaland's work, but it's just in a different way. And largely, sure. I think, as you mentioned, around the drums and percussion. You know, they've also worked with a stunning range of artists and cross-pollinated their respective sounds with both new discoveries. I mean, Khalees was new when Pharrell started working with her. And then, you know, big superstars like, you know, Madonna. They both worked with Madonna. What do you think makes them such adaptable collaborators? You know, when you look back to some of those early interviews with Timbaland, he was already interested in world domination from day one. Yeah. Like he, I yeah. think that, you know, I remember reading about him in Vibe magazine probably in 1996, like before Genuine's album came out. And, you know, he was just talking about like, I'm going to unleash all of this stuff on the world. I'm going to take it over. And it's like all <laughs> hyperbolic language, but it's kind of true. Like what he and the Neptunes did and largely what the South did, if you can consider Virginia Beach part of the South, you know, they like moved the dial of pop music way toward like digital, computerized black music sounds, especially after a lot of the boy band, girl pop of the late 90s. And, you know, they they brought in this kind of Southern black whimsical music to the center of pop. And, and then everyone else had to sort of respond to that for the next couple of decades. So, you know, Seriously. like whether it's Justin Timberlake or whether it's Britney Spears, or whether we're talking about Nelly Furtado's big, you know, branding transformation. Total pivot, right? Everybody was pivoting, and what they were doing, right, is they wanted to kind of take over the world of pop music, and they wanted to be at the center and have the world of pop revolve around them. So I think that's a big part of it in terms of how they were open and receptive to all collaborators, right? Like, you know, they could do anything with almost anyone and they could find what made that artist tick, but they could also attach their own sound to it in a way that was really powerful. That's the thing I find most interesting, honestly, is that 
there was this period, especially in the aughts, between that peak period for the Neptunes and that peak period for Tim in the mid-decade, where on the one hand, it was all these different artists, and yet somehow you still knew this sounds like a Neptunes record or this sounds like a Tim record. You know, it, it had their, their sauce on it somehow. And that adaptability is what kind of impressed me. It's incredible. I mean, you think of something like Hollowback Girl, you know, Gwen right. Stefani, and it's like, oh, well, that doesn't sound like anything she did before. It doesn't sound right. unusual for what she would do, but it's definitely whimsical. It's definitely left of center. And yet it's, to me, one of her best tracks ever. And it's totally weird. Like, it's just a weird track on every level, if lyrically. You, you might call it Bananas, B-A-N-A-N-A-S. <laughs> we could do that. We could say that. Bananas. They were like post-genre before so many other people were post-genre, before the kind of YouTube era of like quiz and art music where you cut everything up and mix it all up. They were doing that way in advance. I want to bring Missy into the conversation because it seems to me that she's kind of Timbaland's muse, yet she's a producer in her own right. She's a songwriter, obviously. She's an iconoclast. Um, and she's doing something, it seems to me, that no rapper before or since has really done. In her flow, her presentation, her iconography, where do you see her falling on the timeline and, and her influence? I mean, Missy's influence is everywhere. God, I mean, she, along with Timbaland, along with Neptunes, you know, they helped explode the kind of vocabulary of 21st century pop. And I think there's never been a Black female singer, songwriter, producer, MC who's been able to experiment with sound who's been able to create the kind of sonic fantasies that she's been able to create in her music and to do it all in the context of this like pop hit machine. The avant-garde, the weird, the whimsical, the capricious, but in the context of pop and make pop hits. So I don't, I think she's totally unparalleled, right? Even as a, a woman who's a producer of her own music, performer, singing, emceeing, all of that. I think as a rapper, her timing, her intonation, her like vocal syncopation, her humor, it's like virtuoso. It's as interesting as anything Timbaland is doing with the beats, you know, like, and that's not even to mention all of her visual, like brilliance and genius. She's, you know, she's somebody we should be talking about in the same conversation that we talk about a Bowie or anybody else, right? Their ability to kind of synthesize all of this stuff visually and musically and, and create these images that we've never seen before. Thinking also about the confidence that she had has had around her body, right? right. Um, as a kind of alternative. Even rapping about it, I mean, openly. Yeah. Absolutely. So a kind of alternative diva model. Um, so when you ask about influence, I mean, would there be Andre 3000 and Outkast in the exact way that there is, you know, without Missy? I mean, they came around at the same moment, but he gets a lot, you know, more whimsical. That's a good point. He gets freakier, actually, kind of post-Missy, doesn't he? He really does. With chains and no chains and whips, I do suck lips to hips, jerk, and double time the boy next door the freak. M.I.A. Gaga, I think, owes a debt. Nicki Minaj, Azalea Banks, Brie Runway, Rosalia. Mm -hmm. 
Little Nas X. Would we be talking about Little Nas X without Missy? Lizzo, you know, um, Missy's Missy's the bomb. There's never been any other figure like Missy, and yet I also feel like she's undervalued and underrecognized. I agree. So my read on the three of these folks is that each of them is in a different place career-wise and spiritually. Pharrell is, it seems to me, a perpetual workhorse. I mean, you would know better than me. And he's still in the mix. Tim seems to have settled into something like an elder statesman role, but I I never want to count him out. And Missy, I don't know if we're ever going to get another album from her, but, you know, should we assume all three of them could still produce a banger at any moment? I kind of half expect it. Yeah, I mean, I'll join you in just saying I would never count any of them out. And Pharrell, you're right. He's like a nonstop uh, wellspring of creativity um, who just keeps going from hit to hit. And, you know, Ariana Grande, Jack Harlow, like he just keeps working and he just he, he almost emblematizes creativity itself. He embodies it. Timbaland, I think, hasn't really got his due in some ways in terms of his craft and what he brought to pop music. But he's, you know, even though he's not creating as many hits on the charts today, like Versus, you know, was one of the biggest hits of the pandemic, right? And just in terms of thinking of the format that he created, the platform that he and Swizz Beats created around that. That's an important point, which I failed to make in my episode, which is that Versus was half his brainchild, effectively, right? Absolutely, right. And, and it was also a brilliant use of his back catalog and all artists' back catalogs. But, you know, just thinking of him as a kind of archivist in that sense and the way that Versus has, like, made people kind of rethink the archive, right, of, of, of music, of certain kind of music. When I called Swiss, I said, Swiss, you remember that idea we was working on? We did a Hot 97. He said, yeah, I said, Man, we all stuck in the house. Let's do it. Let's do that. Let's do it now. Let's do it right now. He said, right now? And I think it was that moment of surrender. And then we just said, let's do it. And we just jumped and did it. And we had 30,000 followers that day. But those 30,000 turned up to be 30 million because it influenced the world. So he deserves his due. Missy, you know, she's battled physical ailments, illness, but she's still active. I mean, there's that track with um, Lizzo. She's done other stuff recently, um, and she's she maintains a presence on the scene. But, you know, the reality, as you know, Chris, the life cycle of any artist or superstar, it's short. So they've already, like, if they never did anything else, their stamp would be there forever on, on the, the course of having changed the course of pop music. Jason, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you were present at the creation of an amazing moment between Pharrell Williams and the rising star Maggie Rogers. Can you talk briefly about that? Sure. That was that was a masterclass um, that I'd worked on, and that was part of Pharrell's residency. And um, he was going to do a masterclass, which basically meant that he was going to sit down, listen to students' music, but he didn't know much else about it. And I remember him even walking into the room and saying, what am I doing here exactly? And I was like, just don't worry, don't worry. And so in that video, like I do the intro um, and then the next thing we do is we cut to the scene in the actual classroom itself, which is a studio which where I was. Say the same thing all over again. This next person has as much heart as any human being I've ever known. I'm quite serious. Uh, Mags, Maggie Rogers. And you know, it was amazing just to sit there and watch him listen to folks' music and just be totally open to the experience and just hear what they're working on. And we all felt the same way in that room when Maggie's music came on. I was actually the one who picked that song. Students had submitted music and she was in my class and she had submitted music and she had just worked on that track. 
that was what she submitted and I I picked that one along with the other two songs. And Was this Light On or was this a different This track? is Alaska. Alaska. And it was like right. a new kind of music that she was working on at the time. It wasn't typical of the kind of thing that she had done before. And I loved it um, just instantly. I love the groove of it, the feeling of it. And he responded, obviously, in, in real time to it in a way that was like powerful. But we didn't think anything of it after that. Like we finished the video. I remember, you know, telling people like, we should really get this video online. And, you know, his company, you know, uploaded it. And that was kind of like the last we heard of it. And then suddenly it just became a viral thing. Somebody put it on Reddit and it turned into something else. But it was just another one of those happy accidents, you know, that Pharrell became involved with. Who knows what's going to come out of it, but let's just do something and, and put Pharrell in front of students and see what happens. So it was super exciting and great. I have zero, zero, zero notes for that. And I'll tell you why. It's because you're doing your own thing. It's singular. It's like when the Wu-Tang Clan came out, like no one could really judge it. You either liked it or you didn't, but you couldn't compare it to anything else. And that is such a special... Quality. And it was a catalyst for, for Maggie's entire career, basically. I mean, it was kind of a, a star is born moment for her. Yeah, from the time that, that she was working on that song and, and when that masterclass hit until she was doing her you know, graduation pitch where our students have to go in front of a group of invited industry leaders and sort of pitch their work. Like that must have been just a couple of months. And by that time, she had so many offers coming in. It's not something anyone could have engineered. Nobody could have like figured it out, but it just happened. And it was, it was just an amazing moment. And yeah, she's gone on to become, you know, such a superstar. And, um, you know, Pharrell's at the center of that in so many ways. And what I love about that anecdote is how, yet again, you can never pigeonhole Pharrell, right? You, you, he comes at music in this very pure way and he has this very pure reaction to what he's hearing. And he's a catalyst for, you know, this important moment in, in an artist's career. I think so. And I think, you know, I always think of this term clairaudience. So it's related to the term clairvoyance, which means obviously people who can see into the future, but there are people who can hear into the future. And I think he hears into the future. He hears things that are not there yet, right? He hears ideas that other people would just say, eh, whatever. But he just, for some reason, attaches to them. And those ideas become much bigger and they, they generate outward into the world and they become things unto, them, unto themselves. And he somehow manages to be along for that ride. It's really, it's fascinating. It's inspiring. It is. Well, I just want to thank you again, Jason, for taking the time to join us. This has been extremely educational and helpful. You always have so much going on. What's the best way for folks to keep up with you? Uh, just on Instagram uh, or Facebook. My handle is at Jason King says, and I'm always happy to communicate and talk with people that way. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us on Hip Parade, The Bridge. Chris, happy to join. Thanks so much. Now comes the time in Hit Parade, The Bridge, where we do some trivia. And joining us from New York, New York, the city so nice they named it twice, it's Don. Hey, Don. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Doing well today. So I understand that, like me, uh, you were a pretty big fan of uh, Casey Kasem uh, dating as far back as the 70s. Do I have that right? 
Yeah, well, some of my earliest music memories are listening to uh, Casey Kasem's American Top 40 in, uh, you know, when I was like 11 or 12 years old, it was a Sunday night ritual with me and my mom. We'd turn it on at six o'clock and listen to the whole thing. And I'd like write in a notebook and, you know, keep track of all the songs and stuff like that. So, yeah, I started out pretty young. American Top 40. Here at number two and moving up, Stevie Wonder with... You haven't done nothing. You know, the writing in the notebook part sounds very familiar to me. When I started listening in the 80s, I did the same thing. Um, and it's interesting to me that it was a nighttime ritual for you because in um, in New York City in the 80s, it was a Sunday morning thing. Hmm. But uh, you were you were in a different place back in the seventies, I guess. Yeah, I lived in uh, I lived in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and we Got used it. to get it from KQEO in Albuquerque, New Mexico, as uh, Casey Kasem would often point out. Well, that must have been exciting. Yeah. Well, uh, and before we plunge right into the trivia, I, of course, want to thank you for being a Slate Plus subscriber. We only open these trivia rounds to our Plus members. So if you, Plus member, would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. All right, Don, I think you know how this works. I'm going to ask you three trivia questions. The first will be a callback to our most recent full-length episode of Hit Parade, and the next two will be a preview of our next episode. And then at the end, you're going to get a chance to ask me a question. Are you ready for some trivia? Ready to go. All right, rock and roll. Here we go. Question one. In our last episode, I mentioned several artists that Pharrell Williams and Timbaland both produced tracks for on the same album. Which of these albums is not one of them? A. Madonna, Hard Candy. B. Jay-Z, The Black Album. C. Justin Timberlake, Justified. Or D. Britney Spears, Britney. I'm trying to recall. Um, let's see. A was Madonna, right? That's right. I think it was A. And I'm afraid that is incorrect. The correct answer is D, Britney Spears' Britney album. The Neptunes, Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, produced the track I'm a Slave for You on that Britney Spears album, but Timbaland did not work with her. All right, 0 for 1, but here goes with the preview trivia, and you have an opportunity to uh, turn it around. Ready for some preview trivia? Yes, I am. All right, question two. All of these mid-80s post-disco singles first hit Billboard's Dance Club chart between 1983 and 85. Which one cracked the top 10 on the Hot 100, the big pop chart, first? A. Shannon, Let the Music Play. B. Madonna, Borderline. C. Expose, Point of No Return. Or D. Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam, I Wonder If I Take You Home. Hmm, that's tough. Let me think about that. Um, I'm trying to recall my, I'm not an, exactly an 80s expert, but I think I'm going to go with Lisa Lisa and Cold Jam. And I'm sorry, the correct answer was A, Let the Music Play by nah. Shannon. Shannon's biggest hit broke into the top 10 in February 1984. It is widely considered the first hit of the dance pop subgenre known as Freestyle. All right. Um, no problem. We got one more trivia question. Ready for question three? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. All right. 
all of these artists associated with the freestyle genre scored number ones on the Hot 100. But who was the only one to hit the top with a song that was not a ballad? A. Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam. B. Expose. C. Sweet Sensation. Or D. Stevie B. I'm going to go with Expose, Chris. And I'm sorry, you could have got stuck with Lisa Lisa. The correct answer yeah. was A, Lisa Lisa. Although Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam's number one hits, Head to Toe and Lost in Emotion, were closer to retro Motown than freestyle, they were up-tempo. Expose, Stevie B, and Sweet Sensation all broke with high-energy club songs, but then hit number one on the Hot 100 with ballads. Oh, gosh, Don, I'm so sorry. That's uh, all right. You, you got blanked. Uh Probably not your category. You said you yeah. weren't an 80s expert. Yeah, not my sweet spot. I'm a 70s guy, so. Here's the good news. You have an opportunity to turn the tables on me and, uh, you know, get your revenge now. So do you have a question for me? Yes, I do. Um, let's see. For the 12 weeks from 11875 through 4575, there were 12 different number one songs. Bookending these, this 12-week stretch were number one songs by Elton John, each of which were number one for two weeks. Which were the two songs? Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and Island Girl, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me and Somebody Save My Life Tonight, which is B. C, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and Philadelphia Freedom, or D, Philadelphia Freedom and Island Girl. That's an excellent question, and uh, I love that those are mostly 75 number ones. I think the only outlier among your answers is Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, which went to number two as an Elton song and later went to number one in a duet with George Michael way ahead in 1992. Because I covered this in our Elton and George episode of Hit Parade way back at the beginning of the show, I'm pretty sure the answer is C, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and Philadelphia Freedom. You are correct. Yeah, that was an interesting moment for Elton because he was releasing all these one-off singles and then they got left off of the uh, the album he debuted at number one with that year, uh, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboys. So go figure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's your sweet spot, obviously. Yeah. So uh, I, I can tell uh, when you were the biggest chart fan. So I appreciate that question. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to take a little victory lap there. And Don, despite the uh, trivia uh, results, I hope you enjoyed being on this episode of Hit Parade the Bridge. Yeah, I had a great time, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So, as those last two trivia questions indicated, our next episode is going to be about the history of the subgenre known as freestyle. Now, our latest episode about Pharrell, Timbaland, and Missy touched on the history of New Jack Swing. Freestyle predated and overlapped with New Jack Swing, but it had its own distinct identity. Freestyle is, you might say, a liminal genre that falls between electro at the beginning of the 80s and New Jack Swing in the late 80s, and it's roughly contemporaneous with house music. It dominated pop radio in the 80s largely in cities, especially those with large Latin populations like Miami and New York. And I must say, as a New Yorker, I am probably more keyed into freestyle than others might be. However, 
even if you are nowhere near the East Coast, nowhere near those cities, if you followed the charts in the 80s, you heard these artists. Shannon, Lisa Lisa, Exposé, Stevie B, Sweet Sensation. These acts scored national top 10 or even number one records. But the quirk of freestyle was how it crossed over. To go fully pop, some of the music's most exciting elements were toned down, which is funny to say about such a poppy genre. Still, freestyle punched above its weight in the 80s. At its peak, Billboard gave it essentially its own chart. Also, big artists associated with more mainstream success from Madonna to the Pet Shop Boys crossed paths with freestyle producers or scored hits mining the freestyle sound. With Pride Month coming up, it felt appropriate to go deep on a club sound that was driven by subcultures and embraced by LGBTQ audiences in particular. So that's going to be the topic of our next Hit Parade episode coming in mid-June. This episode of Hit Parade The Bridge was produced by Kevin Bendis, and I'm Chris Malampe. Keep on marching on the one.